Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 367. And today we're talking Eastern Whitetails. That's not something you hear us say very often on the Hunt Back Country podcast, but our guest Nathan Killen hunts whitetails out east in a very adventurous way, in a backcountry way, including backpack hunting for whitetails. We wanted to speak with Nathan about how he pulls these hunts off, how he targets mature whitetails in big timber out east, and much more. We know that there's so many guys who tune into this show that live in the Midwest or out east and don't necessarily get to get in the mountains as much as they would like, but maybe they've been overlooking some opportunities in their own backyard to do some backpack hunting. I hope that this conversation with Nathan will help give you some inspiration to access some areas that you've maybe overlooked that are closer to you, if you are a whitetail hunter. As always, guys, if you have anything for us, you can send an email to podcast at exomongear.com or look for the link in the show description to leave us an audio message that we will answer on a future Q&A episode. Hit pause if something comes to mind about that right now. Otherwise, let's dive into this conversation with Nathan and my good friend, Aaron. All right, guys. Well, I'm excited for this uh, conversation for context. Uh, I have Aaron on the line as well as Nathan Aaron, I don't even know like where to begin with you, just like a brief, like how we got connected, what your background is, but it basically goes way back in the day to maybe Twitter. I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was pre soul. I mean, it was like early soul adventure days, man. Yeah. So yeah, my former website blog, all kinds of stuff, probably 10 ish years ago. And I think we've only met in person. I think the one time when you we're on the way home from a mule deer hunt and we're driving through my area. And I was like, dude, you need to stop by and show me this buck. And I think that's yeah, the, the time most white looking mule deer in the history of the world. <laughs> so yeah, dude, we've, uh, we've just stayed in touch online a little bit here and there. And we're just, we're chatting recently and you mentioned Nathan to me and that you thought he would be a cool podcast guest. And as soon as I started looking at stuff, I fully agreed. I'm curious for your, from your perspective, Aaron, like, almost how, how would you introduce Nathan to the audience? Yeah. So, uh, I'm a traditional bow hunter mostly. Um, I do a lot of that. And so I'm, I've in those worlds have come across Nathan, um, through the stick boys, um, podcast and a few other outlets as well. Um, and as I think about guys that, you know, down here in the Southeast, I'm in Georgia, uh, Nathan's up in Virginia, I believe. Um, and as I think about guys around here, whitetail hunting, you know, most of them are, you know, hunting pinch points or land lots between ag fields, or you think about the Southeast and you think about, you know, maybe, maybe timber, but with, but with fields between them, you know, that kind of thing. And, and then I, Nathan popped on the, on my radar, um, really hunting very mountainous ter- terrain, um, and, and an almost backcountry kind of style, you know, and it was super intriguing. I mean, not to mention he's just you know, I, I'm sure as we get him talking, you'll hear, but, um, he's just a wealth of knowledge. And so as I, as I was hearing him talk one time after talking to you, I just thought, man, Nathan's sort of doing the Western style of hunting, but out here in the East where I'm at, you know, I, I want to know more about that. And so I, I started just following around everything I see, uh, Nathan doing, trying to learn from him. 
Um, and he's obviously, I, I don't want to misspeak for him or anything, but he's obviously killing huge deer with a stick bow back in the backwoods of the mountains, you know, miles from the truck, um, a lot like what you would do with elk or something out West. And so um, just super cool thing that not a lot of guys are doing and definitely not a lot of guys are doing successful. Um, so I'm excited to, to hear from him. Yeah. So Nathan, fill in the gaps where kind of where specifically are you from? Did you kind of grow up there? How did you get into kind of this call it style of hunting, if you will? Was it out of necessity or desire or how did that come together? Oh, it's definitely the desire. Um, yeah, I was born and raised right here in the Appalachian Mountains of uh, southwest part of Virginia. Um, my dad and I kind of started hunting together. Uh, we had a, uh, uh, well, my grandfather, he worked with a guy that uh, done a lot of deer hunting, and he do, knew that my dad uh, liked to deer hunt or wanted to get into deer hunting. So uh, uh, my grandfather hooked this guy up with my dad uh, and this guy's name is Eugene Belcher and he's from Eastern Tennessee, but, uh, anything, uh, or anyway, one thing led to another and, uh, we've been hunting ever since, you know, and, uh, but I just, uh, you know, I love our mountains, uh, here, uh, and they range from anywhere around 1800 feet up to, uh, right at 6,000 feet uh, in the area that I live. And actually, my house is sitting at 2,250 feet. But um, anyway, I, I just love uh, hunting our mountains. And uh, we have some fairly uh, remote uh, areas. Um, and, you know, on any given, you know, outing that I'm out, you know, I'm sometimes I'm no more than a mile from the truck, but sometimes I'm, you know, up to four, you know, four and a half miles from the truck. Um, and I'm primarily a bow hunter. I do enjoy some uh, black powder hunting and, and rifle hunting. But I don't do a whole lot of it. But uh, and the adventure that I get or get from uh, backpacking into these places and you know hunting for a few days at a time is really what I love the most. You know, and I don't always do that, but uh, I always try to uh, you know do a bivy style hunt. You know, a time or two every season. So. Yeah, that's cool. I, uh, for context, both for you guys and, you know, a little bit, Aaron, but for you, Nathan, as well as some of the listeners growing up in Missouri, you know, there's, there's plenty of like what you see on TV, I'll call it whitetail hunting. Right. So there's plenty of agriculture, especially up North, um, and all that, but obviously getting to Southern Missouri and it's kind of the Ozarks. So Southern Missouri, Northern Arkansas, uh, quote unquote mountains, uh, the Ozark mountains, but that's what I just have an affinity too for my own whitetail hunting these days. And so I, I can relate, I think a little bit to you, Nathan, in, in the sense of kind of the approach to this. And I know also from my own experience, it can be very difficult. It can be frustrating. It's not always high population density. It's not always high trophy quality, but it's the desire of like, as you said, just getting out there. Um, it's really neat, man. It's, it's been interesting for me to connect with other whitetail hunters, uh, in Missouri. And they're like, you're doing what you're backpacking and where you're hunting, where, you know? Um, and so I, I've gotten some of the strange looks that I'm sure you do, but Nathan, but, um, to get to like kind of some straight up tactic strategy stuff, I'm super curious. And I'm sure this maybe changes on the hunt, Nathan. Um, what do you use, certain setups most meaning tree stands saddles um 
building natural blinds on the ground, using a ghillie suit on the ground? Like what, you know, what is your approach for kind of that sit and wait ambush style hunts? Uh, and what techniques do you use to employ that? Well, uh, it mostly depends on, uh, the time of season as to, you know, early season, uh, I'm using a really lightweight mobile setup. Uh, you know, I, I like the long wolf custom gear stuff. Um, I've got a, uh, a 0.5 and then the mini sticks with, uh, cable aders and that's, you know, really, really lightweight setup. And, and I couple that with a, uh, Airbrily stock F1 mainframe and a, uh, little big top, uh, pack and I sandwich that stand in between the pack and frame, you know, and, uh, but, you know, early season I'm hunting really mobile because, uh, you know, the bucks that you got on camera during the summer and stuff, you know, by the time season gets here, they have really, really shrank their, uh, home ranges down to super small spots, you know, and, uh, you know, all these guys that get these bucks on camera throughout the summer, you know, they may have five, six, seven, eight really good deer and they're really excited. Then by the time season gets here, you know, they seem to have just disappeared. And really they haven't disappeared. They've just really shrank their uh, core areas down. And of course they've dispersed, you know. But uh, so early season, it re- requires being really mobile, uh, pretty much scouting on the go. And uh, whenever you get into, you know, some really good hot sign, then go up a tree and hunt it, you know. And then uh, once uh, season progresses, uh, gets in, you know, to the rut time, uh, you know, I pretty much know by then where I need to be spending a lot of time. And uh, and really, you know, the furthest back places that I hunt, usually I have a tree stand staged back in those type of areas that way. Uh, and a lot of times I have, you know, stands already up a tree. So whenever I'm uh, backpacking back into those type areas and, and plan on spending a few days, you know, I'm not actually carrying a stand in and out with me. You know, I've already got them back there and they're either up a tree or they're hid beside of a rock or a, uh, a log or something of that way. You know, I can still be mobile back in those spots, but I'm not physically carrying my stand in and out. Now I, I went down the uh, path of um, saddle hunting some, but I don't know. It just doesn't work well for me, uh, being a traditional bow hunter because that tether, it just gets in my way. Um, cause whenever I shoot, I like to camp my bow and I'm leaning into the tether. So it seems like I'm having to draw back to clear my elbow of the tether and then lean into my shot. So it's just a lot of extra movement up in the tree. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I should say, uh, Aaron, like you put together a fantastic, uh, list of questions for Nathan. So I want you to jump in anytime and essentially play co-host. But one thing that stood out to me in what you said, Nathan is talking about how, you know, the season progresses, these core areas for these bucks kind of shrink. Can you talk about some of what you've learned and observed and what what those, how you would define characteristics of those core areas where those bucks are spending that part of their time? Well, generally they're always, uh, in association with food early in the season, you know, uh, here in the mountains, you know, acorns is what, uh, uh, we look forward to hunting every year. You know, if, if we have zero acorn crop, then those bucks, bucks can be very, very hard to locate the deer. You know, we don't have a, a big, deer density here you know so if there's uh little food 
then the deer are really spread out, but you get kind of the same scenario. You know, if there's an abundance of food, the deer are also spread out. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the ideal situation would be, you know, um, mass crops that are um, kind of spotty, you know, cause, so that kind of helps narrow down where these deer are going to be. But uh, the the bucks that I'm targeting are older age class deer. You know, I'm looking for deer at least five and a half year old and older. And these deer, uh, for the most part of the season, uh, outside the rut, are uh, hermits. You know, they want to be by themselves. And uh, so they uh, uh, they can be really hard to locate, especially during, you know, uh, early season because we got the leaves dropping and, uh, um you know, so it's covering up a lot of sign that they might be leaving behind. And so it's just the little clues that you're looking for, you know, and and most of these deer I have some kind of history with anyway. So I've got a, a decent idea of where they're going to be. You know, generally, whenever you first, uh, the first year that you find the buck, you're probably not going to kill him that year. You, you're probably going to kill him, you know, uh, the next year or two or three years even down the road. Uh, because you you just build that history of where you know the general area that he's you know uh, preferring to live in, and if conditions are are repeatable or um, uh, in your favor, then you know more likely he's going to be there. You know, so you're just looking for you know obviously rubs and scrapes. You know that's going to be made by him and some of the rubs that I really like to key in on are rubs that are made uh, on a tree higher than normal because that tells you that it's a you know a taller stature deer and more likely a, a mature deer so but those are some of the things that I'm looking for you know and uh, obviously whenever I'm um, hunting these deer you know especially during early season like I said they've shrunk their core areas down and I'm hunting mobile you know I'm always keeping in mind whenever I'm approaching the area you know I'm thinking about wind, thermals, you know, stuff like that. And I'm very um, familiar with the topography there because, you know, during the winter and, and early spring, you know, I've already been over every bit of it, you know. So if he's, if there's sun in there, uh, you know, and then I have a pretty good idea of where he's probably going to be, you know. How do you, um, how do you do that when you're back for two or three days, for example, like I'm imagining if, if, if you have a buck like that, or if I had a buck like that and I could, you know, I'd, I'd be planning out my route from the truck to make sure they don't smell me coming in and I'm getting set up. But if I'm going to be back in an area for, you know, say three days, um, are you kind of setting up off say a quarter mile away and you're kind of picking away at it bit at a time based on the wind that morning or kind of, how do you approach a place like that for several days at once? Well, uh, you know, during my winter scouting, you know, I already have an idea of where I'm going to uh, set up my camp, say, you know. And I, I generally set up or uh, try to pick spots, you know, considering, you know, our uh, pre uh, uh, prevailing wind is most of the time out of the west, you know. So I try to choose places that, you know, um, work with that. And but yeah, I'm always trying to stay off of uh, or out of the area, you know, because it's just like a Western hunter, you know, I've, I'm thinking about water, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, setting up camp out of the wind, uh, you know, stuff like that. So 
I not only consider uh, where the deer are going to be and where they're coming from and everything else like that, but I'm I'm still considering those other factors in too, you know. But you know, most of my backpack hunting that I do uh, is you know in the month of November. Uh, so early season, I really don't do that, you know, and uh, so it's it's more rut time, you know, whenever I'm backpacking in the areas and, and plan on camping, you know. But, yeah, I'm always thinking about uh, where the deer are going to be because last thing I want to happen is for the deer to know that I'm there. You know, they uh, they don't know that they're being hunted. All they know is there's something there that's normally not there, you know, and so I, I try to stay out of their way. When you do those, those hunts in November and in the rut where it's multiple days, how, this sounds like such a like practical question. How are you spending your time? Like I'm assuming if it's hunting hours, you're in the stand, you're hunting, but it also gets dark relatively early. And how do you mentally stay in it for maybe two or three days of these long, 10 plus hour, maybe 12. I'm not sure what sunlight's like that time of year at that location, but I mean, you're putting a lot of time in the stand. It's dark relatively early. So then you're, you know, you're kind of camped that night without coming back to any creature comforts and in a tent that, that haven't done that myself. Like it's a grind to pull that off for three days. Yeah. Um, you know, I try to go to sleep as early as possible, you know, and, Fortunately, we have uh, uh, sleeping aids. So, but I, you know, I'm not a very good sleeper anyway, especially uh, in the backcountry. Seems like I'm in and out all night. But uh, you know, I'm usually in a stand, you know, all day during that time of the year. And by the time you know, I may have you know 45 minute to an hour uh, hike back to my camp. And, uh, so, you know, by the time I get back, I, I'll fix me something to eat. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes I have somebody with me, you know, uh, so, you know, we'll sit around and talk, we'll build a fire, you know, but, uh, if I'm by myself, you know, I, I don't know, I really hadn't thought about that much. Uh, but, you know, seem like by the time, uh, I've got, you know, I've eat, I'm just tired and I'm, you know, I'm ready to go to bed. So not, not really, uh, uh, anything special that I do, I guess. Okay, cool. Aaron, what are, have you done any of these types of trips where you're at yet? Or is that something you're interested in? Man? Yeah, no, I haven't. I, I'm very interested in it. Hence all my interest in Nathan. Most of my stuff, I mean, I'll do a dark to dark all the time, you know, where I'll just, I'll hike in in the morning and hike out in the dark at night, but I haven't, I haven't done the bivy or the multiple night yet, um, which is, it's on the short list, which some of the stuff that, you, you know, I, as a guy who's going to plan on leaving that night, I imagine your tactic has to change for you for sort of burning a spot. Cause you know, I'm, I'm not going to hunt the exact same spot, probably multiple days. I might try to slightly edge out the wind, you know, and come in from sort of like a rotating fan on a spot or something that, that keeps him from smelling me quite so strong. But, um, I'd be curious, Nathan, just how you think about wind and all that for those multiple day, like you mentioned, you set up camp kind of off where your core area you want to hunt is. Um, but I know here, like I can be in North Georgia, you know, it's, it's not too dissimilar from where you're at. We'll be at, you know, say 2,500 feet or something. And the wind will, I can drop milkweed and it'll change 17 different times <laughs> before it leaves the little ridge yeah. line that I'm on. Um, like, how are you think, are you just kind of, you've done the math and this is the best spot and I'm parked here, or are you, you know, 
how nimble are you being with that wind? Because I know the wind's basically everything around here. Well, I try to hunt uh, uh, compounding terrain features that's going to bring deer in from a lot of different directions into one spot. You know, that uh, that, that not only helps with uh, seeing more deer and having more opportunity, but you're able to work the wind a whole lot better in those type of scenarios. You know, if if you've got an area that you're hunting just a bedding area or just a pinch point uh, or a travel corridor, you know, where, you know, deer comes through that very specific spot, then if the wind is not right for you, then you've got to abandon that spot. Whereas if you have a compounding terrain feature where you may have four or five terrain features coming into one spot, you know, uh, then you're able to work those places uh, as far as the wind is concerned a whole lot better. You know, because, you know, you've, you're you always sacrificing uh, part of those terrain features, but you still have all those others working for you, you know. And generally, those type of spots uh, have really good buck sign in them, you know, because uh, bucks, you know, they're, you know, you have, you could have multiple bucks uh, using those type of spots. So that really, really increases your odds there, too, you know, of instead of just one, hoping one buck comes through, you have, you know, uh, maybe multiple opportunities for bucks to come through. So that that's kind of how I work that, you know. Yeah, and maybe just to clarify, you mentioned you're a traditional bow hunter largely. Like like some of these setups are really close to sign. I would imagine you're sub twenty yards ideally. Um, what could you give us like a like an example like like of say three or four terrain features that were perfect? So you got maybe like a finger ridge that sticks out, you know, a certain way. Like what would what would be somewhere you walk up and you go, whoa, this is the spot I'm I'm setting up right here. Well, I'll just use my Ohio buck that I killed last year, for example. Um, the area that I picked out had four uh, ridges coming into one uh, spot, and it made a hub. You know, I hadn't actually scouted this spot because I was actually hunting a, a different area, and uh, the buck that I was uh, hunting, which he wasn't no monster deer, and I didn't even know what he looked like because uh, I hadn't run any cameras in there, but I had an encounter with him. He smelled me. And, uh, so I thought, and I was actually going to give it to that morning to see him anyway, cause I'd already been in there for, I think three days hunting. And I thought if I don't see him this morning, then I'm going to pack up and, and go to a completely different area. But I just got on my Onyx, uh, seen a uh, area that looked really, really good. It, it, it actually worked really good, uh, as far as access and a, a westerly wind. So. Uh, I went in with the mobile setup on my back, um, and of course now this works too, you know, uh, for a remote type hunt too, you know, because it's the terrain feature that I'm talking about here, and but uh, it wasn't actually uh, that remote of a spot. But anyway, it was just, you know, had uh, four uh, ridges coming into one spot. I scouted my way in there with, you know, the wind in my nose, and uh, once I got in there, you know, first thing I find is a really big shed and uh, I started finding some uh, big rubs and scrapes right in this hub. And, uh, but, uh, I couldn't hunt right in the hub because of the way that the wind was blowing. I had to hunt one of the uh, ridges, but, <clears throat> uh, anyhow, that ridge had, you know, a good scrape line going down to it and all the sign, you know, led up to, uh, that hub. And, uh, if the wind had been out of the, um, the north or the south it would have worked perfect i could have hunted right in the hub uh, because of the way the deer were using through there but uh 
you know, I having a mobile setup, you know, I was able to work the wind and I hunted that first evening and didn't actually see a deer. And then I hunted the next morning and, uh, killed that, uh, 10 point. But, um, you know, you're not always going to be able to, um, uh, set up right in the, the center of the sign, which in my experience, you don't want to anyway, not hunting these older age class deer. They seem to skirt those type of places, uh, during uh, daylight hours and uh so you've kind of got to hunt off to the side of it anyway you know so uh you know i've been doing this for you know 40 years now and i just have a good um idea of whenever a big buck comes through there how he's going to come through you know and so i just set up according to that sometimes you get it right sometimes you don't you know but uh, seem like the majority of the time it does work out. If I see him, most of the time he walks within bow range of me. It's just fascinating when I hear that to think of like these decades of experience, and as you said, just kind of knowing just that. I know, man. That combination of like knowledge that's become a part of you, and then intuition that's informed by that knowledge, and this is something that uh, I find super intriguing but honestly frustrating <laughs> like on podcasts of like when i talk to guys it's like you know so much nathan that it's hard for you to like put into words because it's there's no shortcut to those decades of experience and like the knowledge that you've basically made a part of you so then it's so in you and you just see things a certain way and you know how to make decisions but it's difficult for you to oh, like communicate that, right? Because it's like, oh, it just is yeah. what it is, right? And then you got guys like me and Aaron going, no, that's not how Tell it is. Like, I want to see how you <laughs> see, you know? <laughs> well, um, it is hard to uh, articulate a lot of times what is going through my mind or what I see because I can tell you several times that I have been in the woods with, with uh, other buddies and we'll be scouting and I can, uh, and I'll say to them, you know, I can just see a big deer coming through just like this right here. And they're, they're like, I don't see that, you know, uh, how do you see that? Or, uh, on the flip side, I have, uh, been hunting, uh, with guys and I've killed a big deer. They've come in to help me uh, recover the deer and they see where I'm up a tree and they're like, I had have never hunted there. You know, uh, why didn't you hunt over here? And I'm like, I just killed a big deer here. If I'd have been over there, I would have never had an opportunity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you just learn things through experience. You know, if, if you're not out there doing it, um, you're, you're never going to learn it, you know, and you actually have to see these things unfold. You know, I always say the best hunters are the best guessers given, um, uh, certain uh, fundamentals like wind thermals and then couple that with uh experience and once you do it long enough you eventually get to where you're you're good at guessing you know because every time we go in the mountains you know hunting deer we're always guessing you know that there's no such thing as uh, uh a standard if that makes sense you know uh, there's no no template that you can take in the woods and say, this is what's going to happen, uh, you know, and it fits right in this and, and, and then it materializes, you know, so 
only experience is going to uh, teach you the things that uh, that's going to help you to become a good guesser. Hmm. So do you feel, Nathan, I mean, you've you said earlier, you've been hunting this area near home for decades. Um, you feel like things change year to year or enough that if you didn't continue to put in the time in the off season or to scout or to think critically and make new decisions and things like that. Basically what I'm getting at is even for an area, you know, extremely well in this context, you can't go on full cruise control, full autopilot and not continue to put in the work because things do change. Well, do change. Areas do uh, uh, go hot and cold, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I love the process so much. I, I, I don't think that I have to scout to stay on deer as far as my wintertime scouting. I, I scout during the wintertime because I love being in the mountains that much. Okay. And I've been like that since I was little. You know, once I got my uh, driver's license, I stayed gone in the woods all the time. You know, when, when other buddies was, you know, like out, uh, I don't know, doing other things that teenagers do, you know, even during the winter months, I wasn't doing those things. I was, I was driving to the nearest wildlife management area and, uh, I was spending all day in the mountains, you know, it didn't matter what the weather was, you know, I loved it that much. And, um, I forgot where I was going with this. Uh, what was the question again? Oh, basically I was just was wondering for your areas you know, is that needed after all this time, you still have to continue to scout. You You still have to continue to put in that time or can you, could you theoretically kind of go off prior knowledge, hit cruise control on your off season effort and still expect to have success? Well, as far as finding deer, uh, I don't think I would have to, uh, uh, spend that much time in the woods. Uh, I, I spend my off season looking for, um, individual deer because that's what i like to do and and i'm always scouting new areas you know mostly for the adventure of it i you know i i'm the type of guy that if i don't know what is over there i have to go find out you know and uh so with that uh mindset you're always you know getting into new territory finding new bucks and uh but as far as knowing how to hunt the deer i don't have to scout uh that much for that part of it i my scouting is more you know finding individual deer and learning those individual deer because i already know how to hunt the deer you know um it's just a matter of finding individual bucks and learning them because they're all different you know they all have different personalities you know and and to me that's the fun part of it now you know yeah that Nathan, I've heard you talk about that personality idea a little bit, and that was a real, you're, you're one of the first people I heard kind of describe it that way. Um, you, could you talk about that just a hair more? So like you're up in the mountains, you found good sign. You may hunt one deer totally different than you're going to hunt a different deer just based on kind of what you're finding. Um, could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, uh, you know, so, some bucks are a lot more social than others, and those bucks tend to lay down a lot more sign. And then you have other bucks that are very, very unsocial, and they can pretty much live undetected their uh, their whole lives, you know, because they're, 
they're so hard to figure out where they're at, you know, because they're not leaving very much sign. And just because a buck is um, uh, a hermit in nature, he, you know, he, he lives almost uh, separately from other deer. And uh, so, you know, naturally he's not leaving as much sign as other deer uh, anyway, but it takes, um, I guess it's almost like you're taking a risk of nothing or um, everything whenever you're hunting those type of deer. Because sometimes if you don't know where they're at, then you're kind of stepping off a ledge trying to figure out where they're at because just because they're not leaving much sign. So you're hunting areas on purpose that have a very, very little sign. You're abandoning this, the areas that have a lot of sign, you know, because you can hunt those type of areas and see, you know, year and a half, two and a half, and sometimes three-year-old deer, but you're never seeing the older age class bucks. I mean, you think of how many guys every year go in the woods with hopes of killing the really big deer what sign are they hunting? They're hunting the best sign that they can find, you know, and they're rarely kill, killing these type of deer, you know. So you've got to, you've, you've basically got to abandon everything that you've ever been taught as far as hunting heavy sign and start thinking outside the box and start looking at these spots that, that don't have very much sign. Start running your cameras in those type of areas. Now, you're going to miss a whole lot, but but whenever you do hit, it could be really big, you know, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. I was gonna, as you were talking about personality, I'm just picturing in my head that aspect. And I mean, you, you went there, but I was in my head when we first started talking about that topic thinking, does that change with age class? Right. So those older bucks, I think that's a default probably assumption of most hunters, right. That, you know, the older they get, the, not only the more cautious yeah. they are, um, so they're leaving less sign, they're less visible, et cetera. But yeah, I think if we want to call it in this case, personality, that maybe those are signals of age class in and of themselves is how much sign. Um, so I'm glad you hit on that. Cause that's exactly where my head was going. Yeah. But now some older age class bucks get reckless too, you know, um, I've witnessed that, you know, and, and how they made it to that, uh, older age class is, sometimes a mystery but most of the time it's just for lack of hunting pressure you know and and really and truly those are the ones that you want to find you know the ones that are you know uh, laying down a lot of sign in areas that uh, is getting uh, uh, very very little pressure if any at all and those bucks can sometimes be the ones that uh, uh, are the easiest to hunt you know because they're they're moving around a whole lot more during daylight hours especially you know during the rut and stuff Mm. is pressure something hunting pressure something you deal with or encounter in these areas or there's just not it's such big woods and not many guys getting back this far that that's not something you typically have to contend with uh some areas are more popular than others you know um but for the most part it's it's not hard to find um areas that's uh you know you can have almost to yourself you know i I've hunted almost a, a whole mountain to my, or had a whole mountain to myself before, you know, and uh, I don't know the, uh, the history or not, I shouldn't say the history, but uh, the hunting culture doesn't seem as rich 
here as it was, say, back in the 80s and 90s. Um, people just don't hunt as like they used to. So, you know, it's it's good for me uh, because, um, you know, I have areas almost to myself, but, um, you know, like areas like Pennsylvania and other areas like that, you know, I've heard that the hunting pressure is pretty great in those type of spots. So, no, I, I don't have to put up with hunting pressure that much, even though some areas do get a lot more attention than others. You know, I tend to avoid those type of spots, but sometimes, uh, you know, like uh, for instance, one of the areas that I'm hunting this year is one of the more popular areas, uh, but it's also one of the biggest and more remote areas that I have access to. And it also grows, uh, some of the biggest bucks in our part of the state. So, um, I'm going to hunt it anyway, even though it does get a little bit more pressure, but still yet it's such a big area that it's not it's not hard to get away from people. Yeah, I think I think at least around here too, a lot of guys that want to hunt, even even the hunting culture is, you know, stronger in areas, but they're they're like, let's get that lease down south kind of guys. You know, they don't hunt the mountains right here where we are. Um, because it's, you know, you're walking on acorn marbles and crushing leaf litter and <laughs> it's steep rock faces yeah. and stuff, and it's just harder hunting. And so it, I think there's a little bit of self-selecting, you know, even, even, even in that smaller subset of hunters, uh, up in my area, maybe, maybe you've got some of that there too, Nathan. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, le- leasing property isn't that popular, uh, in my area, but you know, most people, whenever they do hunt, they hunt private ground, you know, the, the only, the thing about me is, is I, I don't hunt any private ground except for at work. And uh, we've got some pretty decent deer there, but man, it gets hunted really hard. So I, it's it's basically one of those spots that I hunt, you know, like even after work or something like that. But if I've got the time, I'm going to the mountains. And a, a lease would be fine, and I could probably have a lease if I wanted. But uh, you're restricted to the boundaries of that property, and it takes a lot of ground to keep me happy. You know. Um, <laughs> I'm one of those guys that, uh, you know, uh, if it's 50, 60,000 acres, then the more, the better, you know, with a thousand acres is not going to keep me happy. I will learn that thousand acres and get bored with it really fast. So such a great way to put it. Something I can relate to myself, but I've just never put it in those simple words. It takes a lot, it takes a lot of ground to keep me happy. (laughs) Yes. I like it. Um, because you're not, not only you as the hunter dealing with under pressure, but as you hinted at earlier, these bucks don't necessarily know that they're being hunted. They know there's something foreign in the area, right? If, if they sense your presence somehow, do you feel that these deer that you're hunting or maybe call them non-typical in terms of how skittish or what the response may be to that, you know, perceived threat, meaning, have you observed or do you have any um, antidotal experience on like how oh, maybe you did blow it on this buck or you got caught by the wind or something like that, but Hey, the game's not over. Their patterns don't necessarily change that much because they're not being used to pressured too much or uh, just speak to that idea a bit. Well, you know, I've hunted uh, both uh, spectrums. I've hunted, uh, you know, places that's had, you know, hunting pressure and especially Ohio, you know, it seemed like Ohio's got the most hunting pressure of anywhere that I've ever hunted yet. There's still big deer there. And, uh, but you know, back in the mountains, you know, 
there's kind of two ways to look at it. You know, whenever you're hunting uh, areas that generally get more pressure, they're they're more um, uh, the topography and habitat is more um, uh, chopped up. You might say, you know, you have blocks of timber, blocks of open terrain and stuff like that. So that kind of funnels the deer down to really smaller type areas. So those deer are, I don't know, I don't know how to articulate this, but they're going to be more predictable where they're going to be because they're forced into these smaller type areas. So they're not as nomadic as, say, a big woods type deer. So a big woods type deer, uh, which is what I hunt 99% of the time, you know, they're not getting hunting pressure like these other deer are. And and I've always said this, everybody says hunting pressure causes bucks to go nocturnal. I do not believe that. I believe uh, all that, uh, all hunting pressure does is teaches deer areas to avoid. Deer that are nocturnal are nocturnal uh, in uh, in nature. Uh, it, it's it's natural to them because I hunt deer that are very very uh, under pressured and they're still nocturnal most of the time. Especially these older age class bucks. It's it's natural in them. It's not they don't learn that uh, from hunting pressure, and I think that's a big misconception. But uh, and I know that I'm going to get a lot of kickback on that, but. You know, I, I hunt both ends of the spectrum. I see it. You know, the, the bucks that I'm hunting in these wilderness type areas, you know, uh, most people would think, well, these deer are going to move uh, more naturally uh, and move more during the daylight, but they don't. You know, uh, you still uh, get very rare glimpses of these deer. And when they do move, if they're not moving very far from where they've bedded. Whenever you see one during daylight hours, it's usually within the last hour. Uh, or the first hour of daylight, and they are very close to where they're going to be bedded. And that's out. I'm talking outside the rut. Now, obviously, during the rut, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, midday cruisers and stuff. But it's the same scenario in heavily hunted places. You know, these deer just learn to avoid where most hunters are going to be hunting. You know, so I hope that kind of um, answers your question there. And that also goes to uh, how I choose where I hunt, too. Because most guys will hunt these really pretty open flat areas or really pretty saddles and places like that. And uh, these deer learn that, you know, know, after season, after season, after season, that's where they continually run into human um, scent or presence you know so they start avoiding these areas and these older age class bucks by the time they get four five six year old you know they they you know learn all this so they're avoiding those type of spots and that's actually the very type of spots that 90 percent of hunters go and hunt so when you're doing that like let's say you're doing that on a three-day hunt um you know I, i'm assuming that means you're in some thick stuff um, not the open stuff you're, you know, maybe in a laurel, just above a laurel thicket where it comes to the edge line or something like that. Um, but you're, but you're planning on being there for three days. Like, how are you thinking about staying 20 yards from the side access trail that that big buck is using versus the open area? Maybe even thinking about that Ohio saddle you talked about or the ridge line, like, how are you thinking about that for multiple days? 
access is everything. If you have your access nailed down uh, and, and you're thinking about, to, you know, uh, thermals and your prevailing wind, you, you know, you should be able to hunt a spot multiple days because these mountain deer, they're very nomadic. They're not using these spots every single day. You know, that's another misconception. You know, people think that once you uh, nail down uh, where a big buck is traveling through, it, it's not that he's doing it every day. He's doing it every four, five, six, seven days, you know. So it takes it takes a lot of time and persistence for the plans that you have made to finally materialize. And that is what makes hunting mountain deer and uh, these big areas so difficult, you know, because you're not only trying to nail down exactly where you expect that deer to come through, but you're going to have to put in the time and be persistent with it. Plus, you've got to uh, be dedicated to uh, hunting that spot in the right conditions. Everything has to come together perfectly for uh, you to put an arrow through that deer. And uh, so, you know, you do your, your winter scouting and stuff, uh, stuff like that. And, and you're looking at every train feature for, you know, uh, in that, um, in that area that you're wanting to hunt, because see, you know, you're, what you learned back in the winter may not be the same thing that happens during the fall because of where the acorns are at. So, you know, uh, all this plays in together and, you know, it's, a, it's sometimes it's constantly changing throughout the season and you're constantly guessing, but you know, it, I, I wish there was a formula that you could just come up with that would put you in the right spot at the right time every time, but it don't, it, it's not like that, you know, um, every day is a different day, but, uh, I guess I've gotten off topic there, but you know, back to what you was asking there, you know, your access has to be nailed down perfectly. And that spot in Ohio, I had the perfect access, you know, because I was coming in, uh, from the East, I was coming up this uh, little hollow and as soon as I, and, and you know, I, the, the thermals were dropping, you know, early morning. So it, it was the perfect scenario. And, and the spot that I was hunting had the right sign. You know, the deer were traveling, you know, I was coming up the, a little hollow that come up the side of a ridge. The deer were traveling with the ridge. So there was no chance of a deer uh, crossing where I was uh, entering, you know, going in and out. And, uh, plus I had the wind in my, in my favor. I had thermals working for me. So I could, t I could hunt that day or that spot multiple days in a row without fear of, uh, um, a deer, you know, and knowing that he was hunt being hunted, you know, so, and plus, you know, just because I didn't see him today or tomorrow doesn't mean that he's not going to come through that next day. Yeah. I would imagine the fact that you're, you're almost expecting the nomadic nature of that deer to, you're not as worried about burning out a spot, for example. Exactly. Yeah. I get a, a lot of questions from guys, um, you know, who are from back East, maybe they're looking on coming their first Western hunt and they'll count something like that. And, you know, we mentioned wind so much today and scent so much, which is obviously just critical for whitetail hunters, uh, and still for Western hunters chasing mule deer, elk bears, what have you, but it gets a question all oh, the yeah, time. Yeah. 
from guys who are like, Hey, I'm coming out. It's my first elk hunt. We're going to, you know, backpack in for five days or whatever. Like, what should I do for scent control? Should I pack in scent spray? Should I pack in, you know, something to wash my clothes with after day two? Should I pack in extra clothes to change into all that? Um, and usually my answer for them is like, basically you can do none of the above, just you're going to have to keep the wind in your favor. Um, which I don't want to say is always easy to do by any means, but typically on a Western hunt, you're more mobile. You have more control. You're not tied to a location such as a tree stand. I'm curious for you, Nathan, do you take any sort of other than playing the wind? Do you take any sort of precaution on these two, three day hunts to try to minimize your scent? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it comes, it starts with your, your, your body goes to your clothes, goes to your access, taking care of your boots. Um, all that, you know, why my dad, uh, I learned from him years ago, you know, I, I can remember uh, whenever we first started hunting, uh, I don't know where my dad learned it from, maybe from North American whitetail magazine or whatever, but you know, we used to wash our clothes in, uh, scent free detergent and they would go into a trash bag. You know, nowadays I use a tote, but, uh, you know, on like three day hunts, you know, I try not to sweat and, you know, sometimes that's almost impossible, but, you know, the, with Merino wool and, uh, you know, base layers, you know, clothing has went, come a long ways, you know, in reduce, you know, not holding odor and not growing bacteria, you know, so things are a lot better now than they were, you know, say 20 years ago. Uh, as far as, you know, being able to stay undetected, you know, uh, my boots that I wear, you know, I only wear them in the woods. They're not wore in my truck. Uh, they're not wore shed hunting. They're not wore, wore scouting. They're only boots that I wear deer hunting, you know, because I want to keep them as scent free as possible. And, um, because, you know, obviously the more you sweat in those boots, um, you know, the more they're going to smell, you know, I, I just think about all those little things. And and one thing that I've been pondering on doing this year, every time a buddy kills a buck or I kill a buck, I always say they're tarsal glands. And uh, so this year I'm thinking about, uh, I'm going to uh, start using gaiters and I'm going to store my gaiters and my boots in a tote with uh, tarsal glands from these deer. And that way, whenever I am walking to and from the woods, uh, you know, the, any scent hopefully that i'm transferring it will be you know sent from those deer i don't know how that's going to work out but it sounds good in my head <laughs> but uh <laughs> but um I, i'm whenever i'm going to and from a stand i'm trying to stay um away from where i'm expecting those deer to be and uh, i'm not touching anything and you know a lot of these uh, spots that i'm hunting are uh, spots that i've uh, prepared, you know, like if I'm, you know, if I know that I'm going to be hunting a, a saddle that's really thick and access to it is, is very thick, I'm going to cut me a trail into that spot, you know, that way. And the deer will even start using it. But when you're walking through those areas, I'm not touching anything. The only thing that's touching anything is the soles of my boots. And if I have to touch anything, I make sure that I have gloves on or, you know, my skin is covered. I was going to ask you about that earlier of, um, 
you mentioned trails, which I was going to ask about, but even those tree stand locations, you know, going into areas, it's obviously whitetail hunters are very commonly, you know, trimming out shooting lanes or a specific tree that they know they're going to hunt from. And I was curious how that worked for you with kind of this back, uh, kind of backcountry scenario. W- what time of year are you doing that work of hey, based on my scouting, I'm going to plan to hunt here this coming fall. Uh, when are you going in and cutting that trail or prepping that tree to be a good shooting, uh, opportunity? Uh, during the winter months. Yeah. Um, you know, it's cooler then cause some of the trails that I have to cut, you know, are, are pretty long and, uh, the, you know, cutting through a, a laurel thicket or a uh, rhododendron thicket, you know, it can be kind of labor intensive, but, uh, yeah, that, that's whenever I'm doing it. And, you know, during November, most of the places that I'm hunting then are more of traditional type, uh, funnels that I know historically bucks have moved through those type of spots so you know how i hunt during november is is different you know like from when season opens up until probably the 25th 26th somewhere through there i'm being very mobile once that you know the last week say closer to halloween starts coming in you know uh up into the you know november i'm hunting spots that traditionally has had a lot of uh, rut activity in them, you know. Now, acorn crop that year can dictate whether those spots are going to be good or not, you know. So I I have a lot of different spots that I can, you know, hunt. Uh, you know, in other words, if, if one spot that I go into doesn't have acorns, you know, and so the sign is not there, then I, you know, I abandon it. I don't go back the rest of the season. I go into another spot and check it, you know. So um, it's it's not like, um, you know, once I get into a spot, if, if there's no deer, you know, using that type of area, then, you know, then season's going to suck from then on out. You know, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to find where uh, deer are using. Um, and I think that I kind of got off topic there again, but uh, <laughs> my mind, once it starts going in a certain direction, it, it kind of goes that way, but, uh, Aaron, what questions you got for Nathan? I know, uh, you've been following this stuff and it, you know, it sounds like you're edging closer to hunting kind of in this style and things like that. Oh, so I'm doing it sure this year. That, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I see a follow up um, podcast coming then. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, let's maybe talk about that specifically. So like Nathan, let's say I'm going to be selfish and just steal the mic for a second. Please like I'm, go. I'm planning a, I'm going to head up to North Georgia to one of these 60,000 acre, you know, chunks of national forest. I'm going to do my first three day, you know, I've got a place scouted maybe honestly for bear and deer. Like I'm, I'm looking for some combo spots like that. Um, and that like 2,500 to 3000 foot range. Um, like what, what gear backpacking advice, camping advice, setup advice, like what would just kind of be your big, Hey man, do these three things. Are you going to blow it <laughs> for your first trip? Like what would just kind of be your, guy out east who wants to hunt this way advice um obviously you know don't don't be in your deer uh, you know stay out of your deer when you're camping and uh just buy the best gear that uh you can afford you know because the better the gear that you can buy the you know the more pleasant your trip is going to be you know um but 
you know, the, the gear that I use isn't the most expensive gear, you know, um, I guess my pack is the most expensive part and, uh, and I've had just about every pack on the market. Uh, I haven't had, I've had this airboy stock since, uh, for probably, I don't know, six or seven seasons, but now he, I need to upgrade it. Uh, and actually I've been looking at the exo packs. I had the first generation exo pack and I used it for a season. But, um, you I know, know we can talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if you're not sleeping well, which I don't sleep well anyway, but you need your sleep system to be really good. You know, I use a, um, a insulated uh, pad. It's a, um, climate, uh, static V insulated and the, the bag, I, Actually, my whole setup is is I use a a Mount Smart uh, Mount Smith uh, Mountain Tarp LT, and uh, it's floorless design, and it has plenty of room for two people and their gear, but it has a lot of room for just me and my gear, and uh, it uses uh, trekking poles, you know. So it's it's actually a, a pretty lightweight setup. It's it's not like a seek outside tarp or anything. But, Super budget uh, friendly too. Uh, it, Yes, they are very budget friendly. Um, and uh, the bag, I have two different bags. They're both uh, North Face bags. One is a zero degree and one is a 40 degree. So, you know, you, you just want to make sure that you're going to be warm. And uh, and most of the time during November, I've always got that zero degree bag because our overnight temperatures, most of the time during November is in the uh, teens or 20s. And, um, but, uh, I also use a uh, a bivy sack. Um, I can't remember which bivy sack it is that I have, but it's blue and yellow. But anyway, and the reason I even use that is just in case, you know, we have some rain or something other. You know, I always try to choose where I put my tent to where rain won't get under it. But uh, if it ever does, at least my sleep system won't get wet. And and no more than a bivy sack weighs, you know, and, and no more than it is when it's packed down, you know, it's, it's worth it. And plus, uh, I tend to, during the night, work myself off of my sleeping pad. So that bivy sack helps keep everything together. And uh, then I have a MSR pocket rocket uh, uh, stove that I use and just, you know, a cheap uh, stainless steel uh, pot. And I, I like the mountain house stuff that you get at Walmart as far as, you know, the... Uh, dried food um and then of course a uh a water filtration system you know i use the um i think it's the katadyne hiker pro i believe is the name of it and uh you know it, it, i don't have you know anything special you know uh, is your is your simple. actual hunting gear sort of the same gear for both both day hunts and those multi-day hunts like i would imagine a puffy or something would be nice for weight, but it's kind of loud to draw a bow when you're 10 yards from a deer. Like does any of that change? Yes. Uh, you know, if I'm gun hunting, I, I like Kuyu. Um, I, I've got just about everything that they make, but, uh, you know, early season, um, well, let's say during bow season, unless it's windy conditions, um, I'm not using, I've got their, uh, super down pro stuff. It is too loud to bow hunt for a traditional bow hunter anyway, because, you know, I, the closer, the better, 
you know, you have your animals, obviously. But uh, they still make some quiet gear, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just choose my system based on the time of season and, uh, you know, the temperatures and stuff and whether I'm bow hunting or gun hunting, you know. I do a lot of gun hunting uh, whenever I'm uh, bivy hunting, you know, because it generally, you know, our most black powder season, we have a uh, black powder season that comes in generally the uh, first Saturday uh, around, sometimes it falls in uh, late October, but most of the time it falls in first November. So we have gun season throughout the whole month of November, you know. Now, most of the time I do bow hunt all through that time, but sometimes I still do enjoy, you know, backpack hunting during guns, you know, with firearms. But, um, you know, if, if, if the temperature is going to be really cold and really windy and firearm season is in, then, you know, I will tend to choose firearms over oh, yeah. uh, a bow during those times, you know, for obviously comfort reasons, because you just had to bumble, bundle up so, so much. So, you know, the, during then, you know, I would choose the Super Down Pro, even though it's louder, you know, you got a lot more room for error there. I've never, uh, like, run into a situation like that of thinking choosing firearm over bow when you have both options based on those conditions because the noise factor in that. That's uh, that's interesting. The late season traditional bow hunt thing, that's a challenge in general, man. <laughs> that noise is a real factor, even day hunting, you know. Yeah, because, you know, whenever it's really, really cold out and if it's not windy, it seems like uh, you can hear a pin drop, you know, at 100 yards away. So, um, and I have other, uh, I, I think um, I have uh, some of the NUMA stuff and I also have uh, uh, a Nomad uh, insulated, uh, I think it's called the Hard Frost System. I don't even know if they even make it anymore, but that's uh, when I'm bow hunting, that's generally my outer layer during colder weather. Cause it, it's pretty quiet. So much cool stuff, guys. I appreciate you both taking the time. Um, yeah, this is, this is going to be a good episode to get out there for sure. Um, for each of you, uh, Aaron, I'll throw you up first. I know you're, um, don't do a ton on social and stuff, but any, do you want to throw anything out there of like, Hey, if guys want to check stuff out or you can get in contact with me here type thing. Oh, uh, no, man. I'm, I mean, I'm on Instagram as RM Farley, but I'm just a guy. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm kind of trying to lay low, man. <laughs> Nathan, I am going to force you to share yours because you do post some cool stuff and I have a feeling. In fact, I know that some guys are going to want to shoot you a message, maybe a DM on Instagram or something. If you don't mind sharing. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, just, uh, mountain hunter uh on instagram i don't have facebook anymore but i'm sure you can just uh search just my name but i think it's mtn underscore h-u-n-t-r i think is what it is okay i'll confirm and uh leave the link in the show description so cool well guys i uh again thank you for the time i foresee uh maybe a follow-up aaron we'll hear about your first experience trying to pull off this hunt some lessons learned or something like that in the future that'd be fun yeah cool fingers crossed man Awesome. Nathan, really appreciate you sharing the knowledge with us. Yep. Appreciate you having me on. It's fun. Well, that's a wrap, guys. If this applies to you and maybe if you take a trip in the future that was inspired by this episode, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. I've personally backpack hunted for whitetails and turkeys in the Midwest, and it can be a great time for sure. 
Once again, if you have any questions for us or would just like to share a story or any feedback, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.